Welcome to an episode of Now You Know, a Beacon newspaper podcast highlighting the news and newsmakers of the West Volusia community. Hello, folks. This is Jeff Shepard. I'm associated with the West Volusia Beacon newspaper, and I have a guest here, a friend of mine as well, John Boyle. I think maybe best known in the Deland area as uh, the former coach of Stetson Hatter cross country team. First off, I just thought I would uh, mention what little personal connection I have with you, John. Okay. I used to live about two blocks from here, and so I would come by your house not knowing anything about you or who you were, and I'd see the MG or the Triumph or some kind of British sports car out there, and I've always been uh, interested in um, uh, classic British sports cars, so what was it? Did you did you have two or three of those kinds of yeah, cars? Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I had MGs for about 20 years, I guess, about 30 years. I and I bought one. I had one in the yard here for, yeah. for actually for uh, spare parts, and I had one in the carport that I used. Okay, for quite some time. So you might, I, whatever time period it was that you came by, um, that was the circumstance of seeing some MGs. Oh, okay, well there were uh, MGBs. Uh... MGBs. I had a eighty eighty two. That was the car that was here the most. I had a 71 before that. I was the guy that would people would say when I was like 50 years old, people would say, um, hey, I had one of those. And I'd say, yeah, when you were in college. And people would say, yeah, how did you know? I said, well, I'm the only guy our age that still has one because they're not reliable. Anyway. Okay. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I I mean, it's kind of a of a club people that are interested in old British sports cars. Yeah. And well, they, you need to be a mechanic too. Yeah. Not a mechanic. I identified when I saw your uh, MG sitting out there. Yeah. Um, the other thing is Tara and Chris Batista are people who I run with occasionally. Yeah. I'm a runner, and um, I understand that um, you were the coach uh, at Stetson in the early 2000s or 90s. Yeah, 90s and 2000s, and I coached Tara. Right, right. And I knew Chris because I met him as when he was 13 years old as a runner down at... Uh, Pine, Pine Ridge or whatever the school is down in, in Deltona. Delta. Mm-hmm. So I got to know you uh, somewhat through them. I, I would see you and um, Joe Guthrie running right. out here sometimes on the street and yeah. wave. And yeah. Listen as John describes how he grew up in Fall River, Massachusetts with his aunt and uncle. I kind of had a strange uh, 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 childhood. What happened was that I was the I was born in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, my, I was a, a late child. Uh, my parents were in their 40s, and I could, my, my mother was 39. And at that time, anyway, I had three older sisters who were 10, 11, 14, whatever, when I was born. And my mother died in the, in the process. Oh, my. So my father, who was a, uh, worked in the Navy Yard in Brooklyn, 
uh, try to handle a baby. He was devastated by the loss of his wife and everything. So after about, he couldn't do it, you know, with the three girls were in school and, you know. So anyway, I got shipped out to his sister, mm -hmm. my aunt, who lived in Fall River, Mass, Massachusetts. And that's where I was brought up. So I kind of had a dual family kind of thing. I had the three mm -hmm. sisters of my father up in Brooklyn, and uh, I had the aunt and uncle, you know, in Fall River. Okay. And this, uh, and what made my childhood a little different was that they didn't expect to have this happen. The, the aunt and uncle, you know, this was like crazy. And they had just moved into a situation where they were managing a funeral home. So I grew up in a funeral home. Oh, that must have been interesting. Yeah, with yeah. the whole with the whole ramifications of every you know, he was an embalmer and she yeah. was a registered nurse and I mean, so I had a I had uh, a different kind of childhood. You know what I mean? So did you actually live on the site where the lived funeral in was? the funeral home for like fourteen years or so? So okay. maybe thirteen or fourteen, anyway. Uh, so did they have children your age? No, they, 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 there was, they, they were actually older. They were probably in okay. their fifties when they got made. Okay. So it was a whole, you know, it was, it was, it was strange. They did their best, you know. Yeah. So, so going, you know, bringing kids over, I had things like that, you know, scaring them, bringing them to a casket layout and stuff, you know, uh, <laughs> just strange stuff. It had an elevator in the building, yeah, like, and it was creaky, and I did have the, you know, kids, yeah. re kids remember that like seventy years. A guy was over here a couple, you know, a couple of years ago, and he was telling me, yeah, I talked to Charlie Green. Blah blah blah, and he you yeah. <laughs> scared the life out of him. My first memories of probably going to a movie. My youngest sister went to uh, uh, came down and took me to a triple header. She went off. She left me in the movie at four or five years old, whatever. And there was yeah. uh, three movies playing. I remember them. Imagine that. At the age of four. Yeah, well, I probably talked about this over the years, but one of them was Marx Brothers. The other one was the San Francisco Earthquake with Clark Gable. But the other one was Phantom of the Opera. Oh, wow. And I came home. Completely. So now you're not that old. That was not a new movie at that time, Phantom of the Opera, back in the... Yeah, it was probably, uh, it was probably, that was probably done in the 30s. Oh. So this was probably in 45, 46. Oh, okay, okay. You know, I was born in 41. And I came home still scared. Yeah. And she got in a lot of trouble for it, and it became a kind of a thing, you know. <laughs> became a family joke. She would come down to Fall River and visit uh -huh. for a while, uh -huh. maybe a summer kind of thing. But I spent, I spent time as a kid literally getting put on a train uh, from Providence, Rhode Island to New York, to Grand Central to visit back and forth. By, by myself. Yeah, okay. Imagine that. 
Yeah, at what age? I remember taking the subway by myself, definitely under 10, from Grand Central to uh, Flatbush Avenue and Avenue yeah. stop in Brooklyn. I remember definitely, you know, the subway subway ride, and you know, mm-hmm. so thinking back on it now, it's almost absurd that a kid, you know, especially somebody my size, I, I was always the smallest kid that mm. trip with some kind of a suitcase, <laughs> you know, mm. getting off the sub, getting off the subway at Flatbush and knowing you got to make a right here, a left here, and then, you know. Uh, what do you remember about um, uh, your schooling, your your elementary or elementary middle? was Catholic yeah. with nuns who I was kind of a wise guy and oh, yeah. uh, didn't do well with them, got bad reports, wasn't a good you know the school got converted into a condo condominium. Mm-hmm. My ex sister in law had an apartment there and uh, the place where they used to put me for detention or for punishment. <laughs> underneath a little stairwell was part of her apartment 40 years later. That was oh, kind of wow. crazy. Did you keep a connection with your father through those oh, years? Oh, yeah, or? yeah. And not a great connection. You know, not a... Yeah. It was 250 miles apart. And he had a... He developed his own problems for 10 years or so. You know what I mean? Uh, with alcohol and... <laughs> but, well, so your aunt and uncle, did they nurture you? Did they bring you up right? Oh, yeah. Well, they brought me up as right as they knew how. Yeah. But I think they actually... I don't know. I graduated in a class out of high school. I graduated uh, in last in the class. Mm-hmm. I didn't really have... Is that a, a Catholic high school as well? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And I think they might have actually... Bri- I don't... You know, I didn't... I didn't have a plan in high school. Yeah. I just didn't have a... Have a good plan to what I was going to do. It wasn't yeah. like they had any guidance in saying, you know, do this and do that. What were your subjects? Were you interested in any academics? I or? wasn't interested in anything. I was interested uh, in partying and. Uh, uh, okay. I I was through high school. I I became a a runner. You know, and I was on the track team. That was my saving thing through high school. I resumed just uh, being a wise guy and getting in trouble and doing, mm-hmm. hanging out with the wrong people. And then when track season would start, I'd start hanging out with mm-hmm. better people and mm-hmm. training. Tell tell me about how you uh, how you were introduced to running or how you found out that that was something that you cared about. One of the one of the things that uh, my aunt. Uh, got to help to for my sake she became the nurse at a Catholic day camp or, or you know mm-hmm. camp or whatever they call them where kids go for eight weeks during the summer she became the camp nurse so I went there every every summer for the time she was there okay. and uh, that was really good I you know I, I, that was the first time I played basketball that was the first time but they had a race there and uh, uh-huh. uh, I happened I was the littlest kid but I happened to win the race you know over some bigger kid 
and I, you know, I always remember that 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 was uh, that was my first introduction as you know as somebody with some running talent, and then you know then. Okay, so you were last in academics in your high school, but you were uh, a good runner, maybe the best uh, on your team, or I was the best in my event, but we in your we, event? Oh. we weren't that good. Oh, okay. I mean, I ran fifty-two fifty for. 800 for 400 meters I start when I first started that it, sounds pretty good to me 52 what <laughs> yeah I mean it was it uh it, it was it was good but like uh yeah I do okay in meets I don't think I I, I don't think I won a a meet but I place do you remember anything about your uh, coaches or the first year my freshman year of high school was uh, I had tried out for basketball. I was a wise guy, and after I knew I was going to get cut, this uh, old coach who coached everything, basketball, football, and baseball, uh, would come in the locker room and he'd go, Okay, you guys, when you dance, you get off the showers. And... Uh, <laughs> uh, so the third or fourth day of practice, I mimicked him when he came in, and all I heard, you know, all I heard was him going, "Well, never can have for another sport." And later on that year, they decided to start a track team, and he wasn't going to be the coach. So, so. A brother, you know, they had brother. That was a Catholic high school, and they had, he was, took over as coach. And uh, I kind of had to hide from the uh, basketball guy because uh, I didn't want him to see me because he was also the athletic director. Oh, he could have. Uh, he could have told them, "Hey, get sealed. him off the team." He, yeah. You know, he did this or that. So I was always quiet. I, uh, but. Oddly enough, that as things happen in life, interestingly, the uh, that voice thing that I found humorous in him. Years later, I've heard kids mimicking my voice oh, so, yeah. <laughs> when I was coaching. So, you know, what comes around, you know. Yeah. Linda Neer, as John reflects on how it was to grow up in the original era of rock and roll. As, as a high school kid uh, at a pep rally, I got mm -hmm. up on stage and sang one, two, three, sang the Bill Haley and the Comet song, oh, yeah. Rock Around the Clock. I also did, I think, 16 tons. Where do you get another day old? You know. So, yeah, that was uh, Tennessee Ernie Ford. Tennessee right? Ernie Ford, yeah. and uh, made that popular, right? Yeah, yeah. right. So I mean, uh, but like the doo-wops thing of the fifties was, you know, yeah. it was just it was a wonderful era to be in school. I and, gotta ask, did did you have a leather jacket? I I was kind of that way. I had a DA haircut. You know, with the duck, they call it duck's ass haircut with the part in the back. Uh, that was a that was a fashionable thing back in nineteen. Well, it was. You had two groups of people. You could either be, they called them collegiates, or or boogies. 
and uh, greaser or whatever the, yeah. the term was. Yeah. And most of the kids in my Catholic high school were collegiates. You know, they wore white box chinos and button-down shirts, and I didn't. You know, I was a yeah. little, I, I was a little different. If your academics weren't that good, and as you described, your your running wasn't exceptional. I mean, you yeah. probably didn't get a scholarship and go straight to college on it or something, did you? I thought I was going to go in the Navy. That's when people would ask me, what are you going to do? I'd say, I'm going in the Navy. I don't know why I said that. Maybe because yeah. my sister's husband had been in the Navy. So anyway, something that doesn't happen in this day and age is I went back to high school after getting a diploma from the Catholic high school. I went back to the public high school in my town. I was postgraduate, and they actually had a thing like that. So I took some college course. I took uh, Algebra two mm -hmm. or something. I mm -hmm. took uh, bookkeeping. So the next year, I got accepted into the uh, uh, state. It was a school in transition. Mm -hmm. It was turning from a technical institute into a regular uh, university. And I started school there, and I uh, put, I applied myself, and I flourished. I got really, really good grades. Okay. One of the things that helped me was bookkeeping because it got me through accounting, and then yeah. every, the uh, other people in the class were... Uh, overwhelmed by it for some mm -hmm. reason. I remember I was a star. I did, you know, four years, came out with a very good grade point average and all that kind. I actually worked all the way through, co I worked all the time through college. I had a part-time job. Oh, okay. I worked in a cookie factory uh, the, uh, <laughs> loading trucks, and I did that after school every, you know, for a couple of three hours every day. And then the summer, that became a, a job, uh, a regular job going, you know, I'd replace the uh, the regular route drivers and, mm -hmm. you know, fill in for them on vacation. Do you remember, do you remember the name of that cookie company? Yeah, sure, Andio Cookies. I don't think it exists anymore. It was a small cookie company. Andio, A N A N A N N. Dale, D-A-L-E. They had a whole variety of cookies that fought for space on the shelves and stuff like that. What was the what was the college? Do you remember the name of? Oh, oh yeah, it was it, it was Southeastern Massachusetts University. It, it became um, University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth. It it moved its location. Fall River, Mass, was a textile city mm -hmm. with all the mills and all that stuff. It originally had been a college that was set up to teach people industrial management for textiles. Most of the people that graduated from that there moved, you know, there were no more textile mills in Fall River, and they, so they they take their degree and move down to South Carolina or wherever the mills were then. Well, we covered a little uh, here about your earliest uh, career interest. Uh, did you did you end up at a at a job doing uh, accounting or bookkeeping? No. What happened was I 
I misled myself and thought that I, with great marks, I was going to, you know, a great resume. Uh, I was going to get hired by whatever major corporation. I got interviewed with, you know, on my resume throughout the country. I was telling you that, like, I went to Ford. I went to, I, I was at the Ford the year that 64 is the year I graduated. Mm -hmm. The year of the Mustang, everybody was all excited out in Dearborn about the, the Mustang. Mm -hmm. And I was there interviewing for some department there. I was at Caterpillar. I was at... Mm -hmm. When my daughter was born, I was at uh, Lesur, Minnesota, the Green Giant. And uh, mm -hmm. anyway, I'd go to Tripper in you know, different places in the country, and none of them ranked, none of them wanted to hire a uh, a five foot two. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Cocky. Whatever I had an interest in retail, and I had written my senior paper on discount stores. That's when discount stores were first kind of happening. Mm -hmm. I think Kmart had some other name, and anyway, I wound up getting a job in management training with WT Grants out of Massachusetts. I, I started okay. off in around Brockton, Mass, in okay. a little town, Rockland. And I got I I tr was around New England for that company for four years. I started off as a store assistant manager, became a merchandise manager, became. I had a short stint. So, were you doing the training or the one being trained? I was being trained, but I yeah. was doing the actual management of the store. It wasn't rocket science, you know what I mean? It, so you had a retail store that you had to. Yeah. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. Oversee. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, I was, it was on the job training, uh -huh. you know, doing the whole, the, the whole. What was the name of that company again? WT Grant. I, I mean, that was such an, it left an indelible mark. I can still name the department numbers, you know what I mean? Uh -huh. I mean, I was in different places in New England. Um, okay. I, I I managed the a, a section of the uh, downtown Boston store, who sold more nylons than any mm. other any other Grant store in the country. I wound up in mm. Wesley, Rhode Island, where we sold more above ground swimming pools and riding lawnmowers mm. than any other store in the country. I also. I, I got married in my junior year. Yeah, I, I, I was going to ask you. Yeah. You, did, we, you talked about your daughter being born when you were in, um, yeah, in so Minnesota, and I didn't know that you had... We had three kids in four years while okay. I was doing the management training thing, and I wasn't, I wasn't prepared to be a, a good husband, okay. so I didn't do good at that. One of the last stores where we were married... Uh, I came home one day and my uh, all of the furniture and the three kids and the wife had all been packed up and by her family and brought back home. It eventually became a divorce and all that. What was your wife's name and your children? Pat. Lisa's my daughter. She's an attorney now. My son, Jay, he's passed away. He did a lot of different things in life. And my son, Scott, who's a, a painter up in Columbia, South Carolina now. Yeah, so I had, I, I had, we had three, we had three kids in four years. I have, I have grandkids, yeah, right, uh, 
I made a mistake this morning. I called my granddaughter, my son who's passed away, his daughter. Mm -hmm. And I had, I thought it was her birthday, but that's tomorrow. But I also ran in, I, when I was in Boston, now all of a sudden I was... Uh, without the resp you know, kids and everything and without a family. So life changed completely. And some guys that I had gone to school with turned me on to being a, uh, a fourth mortgage owner on, a, on an uh, apartment building hmm. in the middle of Brookline Village. So you went into, you invested in real estate? Yeah, right. I, mm -hmm. I had come into some, some uh, dollars through a car, a car accident that I was mm -hmm. in. So all of a sudden I found myself managing a store uh, or assistant manager of a store in mm -hmm. Wilmington, Massachusetts, owning an apartment building with, I think it had, well, it had nine businesses and 24 apartment units. But it was mostly hippie-type people that lived there. So it was a challenge to uh, collect, and mm -hmm. except for the business, one of them was a post office. So anyway, it was right in the center of this section of Brookline, which is a very... Mm -hmm. Uh, high high income area except Brookline Village mm -hmm. anyway uh, and that was an adventure for a year and a half two years while I was there well um, can we catch back up in terms of your running did you continue to run no, did you I, I, I ran I ran one one year out of uh, the year I was a postgraduate I ran Okay. Uh, but when I started school, I I stopped running. I started smoking. I smoked cigarettes, uh, mm. and I smoked cigarettes and stuff for a number of years. And stuff, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I did all. I I mean, that was the first time I had met. You know, people, artistic people, I mean, other mm -hmm. than what I knew in school, but just regular people, bohemian types. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was interesting for me. It was what you called hip, earlier hippies. I yeah, guess. the early hippies. This was yeah. this was probably in '68. A lot of things led to one another, and part of the building burnt down. Oh, wow. Some kid did something crazy and anyway no, nobody was hurt I hope nobody was hurt that reduced my ability to pay the pay the mortgages on it because mm -hmm. I lost those rents the, the whole thing with it was based on paying the mortgages where there was a profit margin if you collected mm -hmm. everybody but like would um, you have to rebuild or well my investment and everything wasn't enough that the insurance company would give a fourth mortgage holder oh. pay the insurance on it. So basically they talked me into for letting it, you know, foreclose on my mortgage and that mm. was the end of that. I heard that you once struck out on a side trip that ended up lasting uh, years. I took off th thinking I wanted to get away from Massachusetts, get away from New England. I had a girlfriend and we took off to go to San Francisco 
to uh, after the whole thing of the Bohemian thing and everything, mm -hmm. the flower children were happening out there. Mm -hmm. I really didn't have a plan. I thought, oh well, you know, I c it'll be easy for me to get a job, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in retail out there. And you know, it, we took off and a whole bunch of misadventures going across the country, and we finally got uh, out to San Francisco. It was there that I came, I, I, a bunch of different things happened and all of a sudden one day uh, I realized that for the first time in my life, I didn't have, I really didn't have anything going for me. I always had something going, I always had, you know, something to fall back on and I kind of didn't. Yeah. And the uh, the words to Dylan's song, you know, like a Rolling Stone. I went, mm -hmm. "How does it feel?" <laughs> yeah. That kind of thing. And that started, you know, I had a I my vehicle at the time was a '64 T-Bird convertible. <laughs> probably getting 10 miles to the gallon if that. So I kept that for a little while. Somehow uh, my girlfriend and I split up up in, in Oregon. We went up to Oregon. Did you did you have some money saved and you were broke? No, I, I didn't, I really didn't. You were just getting by? Yeah, I mean, I was just, you know, she had little money. I mean, I'm talking little yeah. money. I did some things. Uh, I had some illegal things. <laughs> I had some, a guy had turned me on to some uh, driver's licenses. Yeah. New, I think they were New Jersey driver's licenses where you could just type in your own information. Back in those days, you know, there wasn't a lot of computer stuff. So, you know, I, was, I could sell those and... Oh, like fake IDs. Yeah, fake IDs. Okay. And, but I wasn't really geared to do that kind of stuff and really didn't know enough people and that didn't turn out that well. Things had always been, you know, okay. I could always do stuff and it would work out. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden I realized it wasn't. Now we're probably in, um, in the 1970s or we're so. We're about in 70. I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, I wound up getting rid of the car in 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 Denver, getting to Salt Lake City. You could hitchhike anywhere, you know. And so I came to realize that, like, uh, uh, I didn't need the car, so I hitchhiked from. I sold the car and I hitchhiked to Denver, to, from Denver up to Salt Lake. And then took off or met some people and took off on a, a journey that wound up down in Florida, across oh, yeah. <laughs> through, through a whole bunch of stuff that's worthy of a, you know, a novel. A whole bunch of different things happened, but then I wound up in Atlanta. Well, what, what kind of thing happened? I got, for, I'll give you an example. A guy that picked us up, me and a guy that I had met in Salt Lake, oh, we had gotten picked up by a guy who had just stole the car out of a uh, car lot, okay? Okay. He just drove away with it, and, and he was just looking to get somewhere, and he picked us up. 
But now we wound up in a car with another guy, and we told him about that. And the guy said, wish somebody would steal my car. And so we said, oh, we'll do it. <laughs> and so we took, we, he left the keys or something, and we took his car, and we went down hmm. through Alabama or, or Mississippi, one of them, from ten, somewhere in Tennessee. We told, we had told them we were going to, you know, we'd leave the car, we'd burn it or something, and yeah. none of that worked out. And so, okay, anyway, we wound up in Sarasota. Finally, that's where we left this car. But that, that that was just crazy kind of stuff that that happened. But now, anyway, through that, I got up to Atlanta, and I got a job working in a uh, a warehouse. I got on a daily day, day crew. Mm -hmm. They made me the guy that was doing the paperwork, and. I was the only white guy there. Anyway, I did that for a little while, and I put together a little bit of money. So I, I, I found somebody who told me about being a, a rig man or a, whatever, a roustabout or something mm -hmm. in the oil fields down in Louisiana. So I hitchhiked down there, and I met oh, a guy. You, you just left that job then? Yeah, I just yeah. left it. I mean, it wasn't a permanent job. Yeah, it was yeah, uh, uh, something to get you through. Yeah, it was the first time I'd ever seen, I'll tell you the truth, that was the first time I had ever seen anything that said, you know, whites only and stuff in the restaurant we'd go to it, you know, to eat at noontime. I couldn't believe that, you know, like wherever. Mm -hmm. I didn't, so I just ate outside with the black people that I've been working with because yeah. I jived with them, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, most of my friends who the last remnants of whatever I was doing in the Boston area uh, were, all my friends were black so I was just kind of used to that so anyway I headed for uh, Morgan City with this other guy we had some adventures getting down there but like we eventually got to Morgan City we met another guy what we didn't he he knew the oil business and what we didn't know was that he had been blackballed for suing an oil rig and so everywhere we'd go there no jobs no jobs you know the minute he'd give his name so anyway the three of us decided we they, these guys knew something about shrimp boats we headed, I had no idea what a shrimp boat was. I mean, I didn't even have a visual picture of one. We headed down to, first, I think we went to Morgan City and we saw a shrimp boat. Mm -hmm. We talked to people, but nothing, nothing happened. So we headed down to the Texas coast and eventually we, we wound up in a town called Aransas Pass in the Corpus Christi area. In a, you got your uh, shrimp boat jobs in bars, and so we were in a bar. And one guy, the guy, the guy I met in Atlanta, he set off and knew somebody or something, and uh, mm -hmm. he went kind of on his way. And me and the and the other guy that had been blackballed, we yeah. wound up getting hired on a shrimp boat. The only reason they hired me, though, was because of him. He had 
you know, he was a bigger guy and he had experience, you know, sea experience. Anyway, the next thing I know, a day, you know, the next day or something, we're putting groceries on board and we're uh, going out on a shrimp boat. And we, we head from Corpus Christi, we head to uh, towards Louisiana. And, uh, we were going to be gone for a while, a month, I guess. Yeah. And uh, you could stay out long on a freezer boat. The thing about it was we, we were in the Corpus Christi area and we went north. The boat went north and it was in a kind of a storm, bad weather. So it was pretty rough out. And the crazy part was that the guy that, that was they hired for was uh, actually got seasick. And we thought he'd get over it, but like when we finally did start catching shrimp, shrimp had dumped on from nets onto the back deck of a boat. And the crew all gets around and they call the shrimp out of all the other stuff that's picked up out of the ocean. You break the heads off of the shrimp. That mm-hmm. keep, that keeps them fresher for longer. Mm-hmm. And so it's a work that you do manually with your hands. Right. And it turned off, right? Turned out right from the very start that I, for some reason or other, I was pretty good at it, even though I don't mm. have monster hands. Yeah. But I could handle like getting five or six shrimp in one hand and just go go at them, and you keep dumping them into baskets okay. and stuff like that. The first trip was not good from anybody, you know. You'd be bleeding all over the place, probably. Well, yes, you didn't wear gloves, but actually, what you do is actually you put together a solution of iodine and a stuff called alum. You dip your hands in that and it actually grows another layer of skin. That's you know, that saves your hands. But the that besides the cutting, I mean <laughs> when when you're messing around with a pile of uh, of fish and everything, you got tons of crabs. You got crabs hanging on your arms, maybe you got you gotta worry about catfish that might I mean you you're constantly in danger. But like you also you just gotta be able to do it. You gotta yeah. You got to know that, like, uh, what I've always used for an example, if you didn't do a good job, you might get thrown overboard. <laughs> really, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Is that kind of a, was not with the particular guys that uh, hired us, an old mm-hmm. Greek shrimp captain and yeah. a guy who just had gotten out of a 20-year hitch as a sergeant in the, in the Army, and mm. uh, he was just starting his career. But I stayed with that uh with that particular boat for about four or five months. So you made some money on that, probably. I made some money, not not great money, but like living wage. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And one of the one of the good things about it is that most of my life, the common denominator in everything when I talked about adventures and everything, they were all predominated yeah. with alcohol. I was probably an alcoholic drinker as a teenager. Any problems I had in life, and there were a lot of them, uh, were based on things that I did drinking. My saving grace was track and field for those periods in high school, then getting married for a while. But shrimping, now when you went out on a shrimp boat, there was no drinking out there. That was another saving thing for me, for my overall health. So you went cold turkey if you were addicted. 
yeah, you? Yeah, I, I mean, I wasn't at that stage. I wasn't low down going to the TTs from mm-hmm. cold turkey or anything oh, okay. like that. Okay. I, I, but <laughs> I drank every day and yeah. drank a lot. And, yeah. uh, when I look back on it, you know, that yeah. was that was good kind of stuff. It was good therapy to go out on a boat. And, mm. I mean, it was. I always considered that stint of my life as a kind of my service. You know, like yeah. people go into boot camp and all that kind of stuff. Well, Did you eat a lot of shrimp on that shrimp boat? <laughs> you kind of eat the shrimp. You, you have a trinet you put down to see if there's shrimp at the bottom. You know, you mm-hmm. haul it for an hour or whatever, and you come up with 25 shrimp, and you know you're in the shrimp. Eat those, you know what I mean? You mm-hmm. constantly got a, some yeah. cocktail sauce. So, yeah, I ate a lot of shrimp, <laughs> and I never had eaten shrimp before. Kind of, um, kind of imagine you might have gotten sick of it. Shrimp's still my favorite, one of my favorite food. There's nothing to beat ha- ha- a small, they call it a trinet, and yeah. cooking the shrimp right then, having a pot boiling on oh, the yeah. stove. Well, what kind of um, stories or characters from that experience? That was a, a a low group of people. People were wanted by you know criminals. Yeah, yeah. It was a place where you could escape it to yeah. and had it could get a job. No questions asked, and you know I met all kinds of people. Uh, one of the, a good kind of experience was that one time we went down into Campeche Bay in the Yucatan. Mm-hmm. You could pick up a crew down there for $3 a day or whatever. So one time I was on a boat, Mar del Plata. We got into a storm, and so we we docked at a place called Isla Mujeres out on the Yucatan near Cancun. But what happened when we got blown in by the storm, he just, the captain decided to, we had caught about 5,000 pounds of shrimp by then. And uh, he decided he was going to uh, fly back to Houston. And he left me with the boat. And the boat was like the classiest boat in the fleet. You know, it was really, it was like a yacht. So here I was on a uh, vacation spot with tourists from all over. I had a nice boat and I had 5,000 pounds of shrimp. So I had a constant party going you couldn't on. Have, you couldn't have planned that. Yeah, I couldn't have planned it. And he did, he, st- he, he, I think he was gone for two weeks or something. See all the shrimp? <laughs> no, no, no. But like we sold a bunch of it. And, yeah. and, but one of the things that happened while I was there, all st- stayed offshore was a Cuban fishing boat that would every day when we were fishing, it would put about 20 boat, 20 little rowboats in the water filled with Cuban prisoners. Mm. And all they did was fish with little hand reels all day and then they get hauled back onto the boat at night. They'd try to make breaks. To escape? Yeah, I mean, yeah. and our, all the, our shrimp boats were tied off side by side. And it turned out that my boat was closest to the dock. You know, it was at the dock, but there were other boats Mm -hmm. attached to us, you know, tied off on us. (laughs) Anyway, every now and then, maybe a couple of times, I forget, but scampering across would be some people coming off those boats and running like hell. It was crazy. (laughs) 
That taught me about the way things go in Cuba. Well, what did you do next after your uh, phase in the shrimping business? I did a lot of things. I tripped around, hitchhiked around the country. When I couldn't work on shrimp boats, I'd head up to Austin and hang out. Okay. I became a street person. One of the things I did do with the friend I mentioned, we decided we were going to grow pot in Arizona. We didn't really have a lot of experience in how to do it. He knew a place where he thought we could do this, mm -hmm. but it required a whole trip. So anyway, I don't know if you've ever heard of the town of Jerome. We hung out there and we did some stuff. We bought a couple of horses mm -hmm. and we took the horses from Jerome all the way across country to a place called Camp Verde. Mm -hmm. And Camp Verde is 24 miles from a place called the Verde Hot Spring. The Verde Hot Springs were a place where people used to go and just live like a hippie community. And there was a regular hot springs. We came in and we, we were the guys with horses. We, oh, we went 70 miles across from Jerome to Camp Verde on horseback, carrying all the equipment. We brought the horses to haul water from a river, so our plan was to be able to tie barrels of water onto the, you know, the horses. It was a full-time job for a long time, for a couple of months. And we did that. Our, our provisions were purchased with government food stamps, ironically. And that was a whole trip. We went, three hippies going into the food stamp office, telling them we had a campsite. We set up a campsite near there, a town called Cottonwood. Anyway, they gave us the food stamps. So you to get food stamps, you, you have know, to have they a residence. Put, you're supposed to have a residence. Right. You're supposed to have a stove to cook. So we had a campfire. Anyway, but like that, that particular residence, all I can ever remember, I brought a friend to this spot a few years back. And we're looking at it. It was near a place called Tuzigutin. All I can remember is the uh, food stamp lady coming down in her high heels and a dress and going, I see them. She left somebody. I see them, Mildred. I can see their fire. <laughs> and we have, I mean, it was just hilarious. <laughs> that is pretty crazy. You're right. Yeah, that was pretty, everything I did back then got crazier and crazier. Hmm. There was some good adventures to the whole thing. Somehow or other, I got on a boat with a guy and this friend. Offshore again? Like yeah, the uh, sh shrimping. No boat should have been out. The, the guy that was running the boat, this was a different guy completely. Yeah. And his girlfriend were really loaded, whatever narcotics they were doing, and all of a sudden we figured that out. And they tangled the rigs, and like, I mean, it was just a mess out there. And I always remember uh, uh, my friend, I'm out hanging on the outrigger, and the boat, bang, and I'm banging on, going up in the air like that, hanging onto a cable to move out to get, you had to unshackle something to rehook it and get it, get all this heavy equipment untangled. I'm out on a cable that's running out through a pulley that's used to lift these things back, the nets back right, on. Right, right, right. But it's 
tied up now, and the and the nets are they got twisted. There's big old wooden they call them doors on either mm -hmm. side of the nets. So I'm out there trying, and I'm bouncing up in the air, and I'm re really in danger. I mean, it's it's about the worst sea. No other boats, no other shrimp boats. And this guy's loaded in the wheelhouse. He couldn't go into dock. Oh, okay. Without get, being able to get the rigs up. So you had to you fix this. You had to fix this. Yeah, because the rigs go up. So you had to fix it. My friend goes, Hey, I said, Come on out of here and help me. Come on out of here. And he goes, You're the rig man. Because I was the guy getting the most money. He said, You're uh -huh. the rig man. I'll never forget it. Uh, anyway. Well, obviously, you survived. Let me redirect a conversation a little towards okay. what I think. Um, really something we haven't really touched on okay. much yet, and that's your uh, your running career. I mean, you uh, you ran in school or as a young yeah. man, and then you didn't really continue it in your or, or adulthood, but how did you come back to it? I got to Daytona. I, I got into an alcohol rehab program. That saved me. And I got sent to a continuation program in Deland. What happened was that I was a cut above educationally and stuff like that. Consequently, they told me if I made a year of being sober, you know, I could have a job there, you know, as a counselor. All the time I was shrimping and doing anything, and I mean, I'd smoke four packs, you know, I'd always have a cigarette in my mouth. So. I stopped drinking in 1977, got into this whole thing. A year later, I stopped smoking. When, the day that I stopped smoking, I lived over on Minnesota. I was living with a girl, and she, she stopped too. I went for a run around the block, and so it just about killed me. Anyway, I wound up with another girlfriend who was a jogger. She and I made a resolution in 1980, New Year's Day, mm -hmm. to start running. She was the teacher. She taught me a lot in life, one of the most influential people I knew in life. What was her name? Denise. Huh? We got married. Mm -hmm. I was married to her for a while. It was tough because all of a sudden... I was thinking about doing a race maybe or something like that. She had no desire to do anything of that nature. Yeah. Oh, this was during the uh, Carter, the gas crisis. Anyway, I left the car and we just went everywhere on a bike. Or, And I woke up one morning, we lived on Minnesota. I woke up one morning and uh, went to the race, 10K race, mm -hmm. and I did, you know, okay. Do you remember what kind of time you might have? I probably ran 41 minutes or something. I ran something pretty pr pretty good. In that time you were probably 40-something? I was probably 38. I was really talking all the time about running and <laughs> subscribed to Runner's World and was trying to find out as much as I could what was going on. She wasn't in, interested in all of that. She came with me to this race, and it was down at Valentine Park and in Orange City. In Orange City yeah. mm -hmm. And it went down to the river and back kind of thing. Guy who's still around, Ron Allison, he put it on. So she she didn't run in the race. She went down and was watching a, a ball game, thinking that she'd hear the crowd going, you know, yelling, and she'd be able to come back and see me finish, I won. So I was the first guy across, so oh, wow. she never did get to see it. 
I was hooked. I just started getting better and better and uh, uh, working at different kind of programs and everything and, uh, you know, reading as much as I could on the art of improving. And I really started getting excited. The next race I won... I did really well, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, winning a race, I mean, you don't win, yeah. but, like, uh, the next one, I probably came in second to some high school kid who was a star or whatever, mm -hmm. and, you know, there was a story in the paper about it. Yeah, I quickly evolved to uh, running just above 17 for, for 5K. But I looked at who was good and everything like that, and what I mm. and I went down to Orlando to a couple of races down there to see how I would do again. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking that one guy who I saw his name on the back of the shirt. That guy doesn't look like he could be that fast because the guy was so much faster than me and he was in that same age group and his name was Dave Story and he had been a, a sub-four-minute miler in college and everything and continued running. I started running any, any races that I could. Mm -hmm. I also decided to put on a race. And I mm -hmm. put on a race called Run for My House. By that time, 81, I joined the Orlando Runners Club. I joined the Daytona, Daytona Track Club. So I got well known. And I decided I would put on a race. And so I promoted the race. And I think a couple hundred people came over here to, to the land. And it was a benefit for the place I was working at. The program was called My House. The 5K or? No, 4 Miler. Papa Jay's, they were the sponsor. Remember yeah. Papa Jay's? Yes, I do, yeah. Yeah. The next year it had 400. But I enjoyed putting on the race and I enjoyed talking to people and I was, I was helping people, you know what mm. I mean? At some point, I was doing a workout at the high school, I'd just go there at the time. I could just walk onto the campus. I would, would run, say, eight half miles. My goal was to run them at two minutes, 40 seconds. I was there for three periods of phys ed. Uh, one coach, uh, a guy named Matson, he was a football coach. At DeLand High School. At DeLand High. He, so he was there with every phys ed class. And so finally one day, Matson came over to me and he said, hey, can I talk? He said, you seem to know a little bit more about running than I do. Uh, why don't you uh, sign on to be a volunteer, uh, be a assistant coach? And that led, so I was the assistant coach for distance running for the, for the high school like that. The, the land had bid for and gotten the state cross country championships to be held at the land airport, which is a big deal. So we had a preliminary meet every year. It had at least 200 teams, you know, thousands of people, and we had bleachers, the whole kind of thing. Then we'd have the state championships that would, you know, have all the best teams in the state. So it was a big deal, and I inherited that. Uh, you know, I became the cross-country coach and the director of the state meet for three years. I knew I wanted to stay in the running game, but I didn't know how. Another girlfriend that replaced Denise, we were going to open a store because I kind of believed that you had to have a store or some kind of a link to become a race director. There was nobody just doing that. I was the first person to say, hey, I'm going to put on a, 
uh, race, whatever the, the first race was, other than the, mm-hmm. the the one I talked about. The My House. Yeah, the My House thing, for profit. And uh, I had some kind of a race going on starting in the late 80s. I had like a race, a track meet, a bike rally. Something was happening in West Volusia about three times a month. But they were all events that I created. They would bring, you know, like 6,000 people to the area every year. Mm-hmm. And was, that, was that Alta Vista? Yeah, that's how Alta Vista started. Alta Vista was the name of your company. Then all of a sudden, the chip thing happened with racing. Yeah, the chip thing was was really good, and so I bought all that equipment, and I, you know, started a, a business that kept me going, you know, for uh-huh. 35 years or whatever. So did you continue coaching at the high school? I coached at the high school for 10 years about, and then uh, an opportunity arose at Stetson. I went down and uh, talked to them. Joe Guthrie agreed to help me out. So we started doing that at Stetson. He was still doing the postmaster thing and working for the post office. Yeah. So he didn't have a lot of time, but he'd be there every morning. Joe's been a, a wonderful addition in my life. Did you establish or revive the uh, cross-country program at Stetson, or was it already... Uh... The women's program was going pretty good. They had a girl, Maggie Dobson, mm-hmm. whose son I coached in high school, Craig. But I think she gave it up and they hired us to do the uh, men's and women. The men's kind of got revived. We had some fear years, but nothing like it is now. He's got some scholarships and stuff like that. I had a scholarship and a half. The, the, the good thing about that was that I think I had a fair influence on some people because I kind of established that my best year as a runner, relatively speaking, was at 40 because I really got excited about being 40. Mm-hmm. Two things happened. I went from being a regular guy in the 35-year-old age group to suddenly being becoming a master. Hmm. And Track Shack gave me shoes, a uniform, <laughs> said Track Shack racing team on it. Oh, Are you kidding uh, me? Uh, yeah, the Orlando uh, shoe store. Yeah, right. He's a good friend. John Yeas owns it. He, he's a great race director. He's the guy that directs Disney marathons uh, and all that stuff. So my thing was different I, because he had the, the monopoly on, you know, at the time, if you're going to have a successful race here, you needed to have people come from Orlando. He was always on Saturdays, so I put my races on Sundays here. But I mean, they're an absolute you know, you see him on any any question about running in Orlando, television, he's on, you know, he's the guy. Yeah. Uh, really nice guy. Two of the races that I would try to do often were races over there. The Winter Park 10K and the, they, they call it the OUC, it used to be the Citrus Bowl Half Marathon. As a running fact, I think that I'm probably the only person who's won his age group in those races. Races every five years, at least, you know, one year. Mm. I haven't told him that, 
Oh, uh, John Hughes? Yeah, yeah. I didn't feel like bragging at the <laughs> time I was... So then you retired Stetson? So it was probably 12, 2012. What have you been doing since you retired from there? I was still doing, going in here, going to races and timing mm-hmm. them. And mm-hmm. just before the pandemic, somebody made me an offer and I uh, decided that I'd had enough of getting up at 3 o'clock on weekends. So, so I sold it. I kept helping out the girls with the Me Strong race. I kept some equipment, kept doing that for a few years up until the time that I fell down and uh, started breaking things. Yeah, I ran a half marathon at 76 and 155. Oh, up in Jacksonville, yeah. I was running against a guy that I had run with back in, you know, the 80s. A guy came up to me up there and said, guess who's here? So anyway, I said to myself, God, now I'm going to have to work at trying to win my age group here. This guy was always serious. He was a professor at Flagler. All of a sudden, at about two or three miles into the race... It was a half. Yeah, half. I'm looking at him. I said, hey, Tom, how old are you? And he said, 74. I'm like, wow, right. Now I didn't have to beat him. But the funny part about that particular race, it winded around in a cemetery at the far end to make up the distance. When we came out of the cemetery, here's the race director, the guy that directs the river run up in Jacksonville, Doug Allred. And I yelled, Doug, look who's behind me. Anyway, and it was this guy, Tom. Uh, and I wound up running that, I think, in either 151 or 154. Good time for a half marathon for a 76-year-old. Oh, I thought I would be going to races and, and having that kind of fun forever. But I started to have pains in my legs that I couldn't understand. Something locked me up completely, like uh, well, I couldn't walk. So I got into the house somehow or other. I was, I was just like crippled. When it happened, it was on my lawnmower and I hit a stump and it just jarred my body. And I kind of thought it must have been something knocked my back out of whack. But anyway, long story short, as I went to the uh, doc, they did some tests and they said that I had prostate cancer. So they sent mm. me to a urologist for the prostate cancer. He put me on a medication uh, that they injected, and all of a sudden, my legs started to get better. I was moving around on my own, Mm -hmm. thinking that I had sciatica or something that... But there was no diagnosis. Like There wasn't any diagnosis about bone cancer, you know what I mean? It was just the... Which later you're saying... Yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden, I was back down. You know, I was walking, and I could jog. What was your age at this time, or what? Now, I was probably 78. Okay. Anyway, I was down there every Sunday. I... I'd do uh, five miles or whatever, and I'd get better, and I'd be able to jog. Down there, where where you talk? Where do you? Oh, Beersford Trail. But then all of a sudden, something else happened, and I went to the urologist and. He didn't get a blood count. So all of my prostrate shit 
had gotten worse and he didn't get the blood test and I wasn't to see him for another six months. You know, he didn't have anything to show that I was doing good. He just made an assumption. But the truth of the matter was is that it had all gotten worse. So now six months later, I go back to him and he's got a blood test and he goes, oh God we got to send you to a, uh, uh, an oncologist. So anyway, I went to the oncologist, and he started to say, I think some of this is spread. Anyway, he sent me for a test, and coming back from then, I was, start, I was having trouble walking by this time. Joe gave me a ride, and I got out of his car. I fell backwards. That's when I broke the, the hip. Anyway, so I'm in the hospital for a month with that, and that's when I learned that, West, that the local hospital doesn't do trauma. You have to go to Halifax? Or? You have to go to Halifax or the Central Florida or in Sanford. Oh, in Sanford, right. And it was a flip. And they sent me to Samford, so I was there for a month. Okay, so now I get out of that hospital. I'm on a pretty good rehab. I'm learning to do stuff and everything. And I go back to sign a waiver. And guess what? I get out of the car out here. I grab the railing and I, I fall down to some bricks out there that we had anyway. I fall over the brick and I break this damn femur right in half. She ended up with a right broken leg and a left broken yeah, leg. Yeah, right. This one was on a fair rehab. Then when this thing broke, now I'm, they send me to Halifax. I'm in there for a month altogether. You know, now I'm on this thing. One guy came over, an old friend of mine. And, well, you ought to organize some uh, walker races. You ever watch Monty Python? Is he serious or? No? Yeah, I don't know. No. Mark's a funny guy. Oh, yeah, no, I, I've watched that. Uh, yeah. All right. That, that's, Dude, good. that's good humor, yeah. It was one episode because mm -hmm. it, it was a bomber plane that they was well, parachuted from. They all got down on the ground. They all had their rifles, but they all had geriatric walkers. Well, then, um, one of the questions I uh, thought to ask, I mean, obviously, we age and everybody looks at the last years of their life differently. And I just wonder, do you have any kind of uh, way of thinking about how how you approach that, a philosophy or religion or? I don't ever, I've, I've always been a very spiritual person. I just haven't been a, uh, I got burned out on uh, organized religion. But I'm definitely a believer in God, and I believe, you know, you do the best you can. I truly believe that somehow I was destined to have almost a 180-degree turn in life just about halfway through. The girl that I told you I was married to, Denise, yeah. she, was, she grew up in astrology. Her family were deeply into that. So they, kind of a new age uh, philosophy. Yeah, they, or... Well, they just thought an astro in that, those kind of terms, you know yeah. what I mean? She taught me a lot about that. I think I had cancer rising. In other words, I became a, uh, a more caring person. And I think I contributed. I think I made a contribution that, you know, was pretty good. Whatever effect I had as a coach and, a, you know, on both, I think I left a fair mm -hmm. impact. There's yeah. about eight or nine people that 
came through my business, Chris being one of them, <laughs> who have utilized whatever start that was and made a, uh, you know, a career out of it or a part-time job. Or, Adopted you know, it as a way it, of life. Yeah, I yeah. mean, not the whole fitness kind of, not the whole running part, but the business sense yeah, of it. Yeah. A lot of people are still in that business or got into the business that they would have known nothing whatsoever about had they not encountered me. So that's a, I'm pretty happy with that. As so a, you, you, you feel a sense of like leaving a print imprint or a legacy for... Yeah, I mean, like, uh, I mean, I don't expect anybody to get too excited about <laughs> any of it, but yeah. it was a hell of a lot better than a guy that at one time I'd been pretty low. I'd gotten to various low points with alcohol, just out of control. Yeah, you talked about the um, situation you found yourself in um, in, in the in San Francisco. It was. I had gone down to uh, a park to meet a guy to sell him a bunch of catnip for pot. Mm. <laughs> and, and my girlfriend at the time and the people we were staying with told me, don't do that. You're going to, that's not right. Anyway, I went, went mm. out and uh, I said, what the, what the, how are you trying to, you know, mm. I had been on a place where I could do stuff like, you know, stuff like that. Oh, right. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, this guy pulled the gun, and I, I went. So I started running, and uh, I wondered what it, you know, if he, if he, if he's going to shoot, you know, I'm running, and uh, he didn't shoot. Wow. But anyway, I got back to the to the plate, the house where we're standing. That's when it came. I forget exactly how it came on me that like. Uh, but I'll tell you, just a minute ago. On that shuffle on the uh, CDs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you listen to music a lot. You were you were listening to um, Jeff Beck. Jeff Beck, right? Yeah. But I was listening to uh, Chrissy Hine sing mm -hmm. Bob Dylan, and she was singing a song that he had done that's really special. Every grain of sand. You know, every grain of every grain of sand that happens has got a, a a purpose. That's my spirituality. Everything is supposed to happen happens. So mm -hmm. when I got to the land, I had I had burnt out every single family member, my personal family, three kids, an ex wife, mm -hmm. all of my own nieces, nephews, and I was a persona non grata. I rebuilt everything from totally the ground up uh, after I got here and I sobered up yeah. after I after I stopped drinking. Yeah. That was the so you've uh, reconnected with some of those families. Oh, everybody, everybody, everybody. Yeah. Financially, I didn't have anything whatsoever going. You know, I managed to uh, do fair. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. I'm, mm -hmm. I never intended to get rich and. Yeah. You know, I made a living on doing something I really liked for all these years. Well, not, a lot, not a lot of people can say that, I don't think, you know? And here's yet another story about how John Boyle has left his mark on this community. I don't know. Somewhere, somewhere along the line, I had a convergence when I first became a well-known runner mm -hmm. that at the same time, 
I was doing AA and, you know, I was changing a hundred percent. Yeah. It, it was just so weird. Yeah. When I look back on it now, yeah. that convergence of ideology or whatever. Did you um, find yourself among the people down there at the Victory Club? Oh, yeah. I mean, I helped start, I helped start the Victory Club. When I say I helped start, I had become the senior counselor at the My House program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. So consequently, I was a person who was known in that alcohol re- recovery sort subculture which is a really subculture you know Kurt Vonnegut said that the best thing that's ever happened to the United States was the invention or the creation of AA your story is uh, for sure unique I appreciate you taking the time oh thanks for asking to complete this podcast I want you to hear about one more final item This dialogue touched on the question, what will be John's legacy? While a widely popular race he was involved in organizing in the 80s bears his name. On Thanksgiving Day, 2023, it will be the 39th annual John Boyle Thanksgiving Day 10-mile 5K and Kids Dash, held at Sperling Sports Complex and along Marsh Road near DeLand. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Jeff Shepard for our Now You Know music. Find more podcasts and all the local news you need at www.beacononlinenews.com. The Beacon, here for you.